Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Take a breath. Breathing is an unusual bodily function in that it is both voluntary and involuntary. Compare digestion and blood flow. Those occur almost entirely without conscious influence, except for perhaps by the yogi. Breathing happens subconsciously too, thank you very much, but can also be controlled. In the 1970s, Dr. Herbert Benson wrote the book, The Relaxation Response. He taught full oxygen exchange, where more oxygen enters the body and more carbon dioxide exits. Controlled breathing including three parts, inhaling deeply through the nose for a count of five or so, making sure that the abdomen expands, holding the breath for a moment, and then exhaling completely. Controlled breathing triggers the parasympathetic nervous response. It counters our sympathetic nervous system's fight or flight response to daily stresses. In effect, the relaxation response, the controlled breathing, is the anti-fight, anti-flight response. I came to grips with this later in life than I wish I had. The current president of the United States likes to get the heart up. He likes to trigger. He likes to trigger the fight or flight response, such as the ambit of a troll. And when he says preposterous things, when he says outrageous things, when he picks something that outrages us, when he picks an outrageous fight, it is not merely out of nowhere. And when you read or hear third hand of his racist rant, pause. Take a deep breath. Count to five. Scan the room and see what else is going on. 
And with this occupant of the White House, there is always something else going on. There's a bully atop the bully pulpit. In the era of handheld media, the strength of the bully is to grapple attention. Not only with what the bully says, but with the outcries of the villagers in response when they have heard his horrible statements and when they respond. This gives the bully the chance to pick the fight. In the information age, the bully pulpit strikes the discordant chorus. And above that cacophony, the truth and the relevance can be hard to make out. The president triggered a national outrage boomlet over his attacks on Elijah Cummings in Baltimore. Mick Mulvaney, his chief of staff, said that if Mulvaney's former congressional district had as much poverty as Cummings' Baltimore district, Mulvaney would have been fired. Turns out Mulvaney's district was poor. That got him a job in the Trump administration. But none of this was about Mulvaney's district. It also wasn't about Cummings' district. And attacks on Al Sharpton this morning aren't really also just about Al Sharpton. Trump was tweeting nasty. What do we do? We take a breath. We count to five. It's actually kind of a long time. Two, three, four, five. We scan the room and we see what else is going on. The House Oversight and Reform Committee voted on Thursday to authorize subpoenas for senior White House officials' communications via private email accounts and messaging applications. That includes Ivanka Trump. That includes Jared Kushner. And yes, you are listening to The Tom Hartman Show. I am Jefferson Smith sitting in and honored to be here. Thursday's vote by the panel came after the White House refused to turn over the messages voluntarily earlier this month, including senior advisor Jared Kushner's WhatsApp communications with foreign officials and senior advisor Ivanka Trump's use of a private email account to conduct official business and former chief strategist Steve Bannon's use of a personal mobile device for White House business. The committee on Thursday authored Cummings to subpoena all communications sent or received since President Donald Trump took office that were not already forwarded to official email accounts within 20 days as required by law. Cummings can also subpoena information about whether those messages contained classified information. Well, take a breath about that, Mr. President. Count to five. And for the president, let us consider the poetry of learning more of the truth thanks to unsanctioned electronic messages on unsanctioned private servers. Take a breath, scan the room, and see what else is going on. Good morning, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. It is Tom Hartman's show. Honored to be with you this morning. Right now, I want to talk to Alex Zajcik. Freelance journalist, contributor to the New Republic, author of The Gilded Age, A Wild Ride Through Donald Trump's America. Alex, hello there. How you doing? Good to be here. I am well. Who the heck I am fascinated by, or well, yeah, I mean, almost fascinated, certainly curious about Josh Hawley and why we think he matters, what he represents. Who the heck is Josh Hawley? He is the junior senator from Missouri. He beat uh, Claire McCaskill 
um, in the last election, and he's got a lot of attention during his brief stint on the national stage for his rather unconventional form of religious conservatism, which harkens back to things we haven't seen in a while. The closest echo is probably something like Pat Buchanan's 1992 presidential run. And it has been allied with strain of intellectual conservatism that's come under the rubric of post-liberalism, um, which we can talk about. But basically, his embrace by this group, which um, is sort of a revival of this Buchananite republicanism, which we haven't seen in a while. How is that different from, let's say, what would be the shades that make him different from Mitch McConnell? or And also then what shades might make him different from Donald Trump? That's the big question. The main thing is a break with this Republican orthodoxy on the free market. Uh, and this idea that the state has to be made as small as possible should not have a strong hand in the economy or regulating social norms and mores. It's a very, it's a strain of conservatism that embraces the idea of a strong government, of a very robust nationalism. Um, a lot of the stuff people associate with Trump's rhetoric, if not his practice so far as president, but a lot of the rhetoric on his campaign trail sort of embodied this more sort of activist state conservatism, which, and again, this isn't just in the service of a sort of social justice program. It's actually more about a, a moral project of asserting the state's control over the morality of the society. Where, from a policy perspective, would he differentiate? So some of his language, you know, I know some of his language, he'll like go after big tech and say that the, you know, maybe government has some role to make sure that big tech is not blank. Of course, his is not blank is not favoring big cities or is favoring is favoring white nationalists. Right? I mean, it doesn't, his willingness to hold grip on the market, I mean, heck, the right. uh, uh, we have had totalitarian regimes that have been willing to hold grip on the market without advocating for real freedom or advocating for real equality. But from a policy perspective, what to you is most interesting about Holly or most surprising? Well, I think the first thing to note is his economic populism, as well as the economic populism of this larger group that he's associated with, is mostly rhetorical up to this point. Yeah. I mean, Holly ran um, when he was attorney general. He was against. Um, raising the minimum wage in Missouri. He was against uh, labor laws to protect unions. Um, he's against the Affordable Care Act. I mean, things that, bread and butter issues that help the, the great forgotten American middle working class person that he likes to talk about. In fact, he's against those policies. So in, in practice, there's not a whole lot to differentiate him from your sort of standard Coke-funded Republican, which he is. He's completely funded by by um, Coke dark money uh, in his elections so far. But rhetorically, um, he's hinting at, you know, some sort of new Trumpian formula that would, in theory, incorporate policies to, um, you know, help the middle of the country, these communities that he likes to talk about where people are forgotten and, you know, there's an opioid crisis and factories are shutting down. But we haven't really seen it yet in terms of 
um, policy. He has one drug pricing bill that would reduce the cost of prescription drugs a little bit. But that's really about the, the substance of it. So you have to wonder what's really going on here. Well, I think and, we know. And, I, 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 I think yeah. we know. And that it's the same game for a long time, right? They, uh, they've got to have people whose basic argument is to disrupt democracy for the benefit of controlling more and more concentrated capital. Have to have, in a way, where there are votes, they have to figure out how to win some votes. I mean, they can erode democracy, right? They can have unfettered money. They can draw districts. They can rely on non-majoritarian mechanisms. They can uh, try to suppress votes. And in fact, that's pretty close to a playbook of the anti-democracy uh, movement over over the last 40 years, and, and particularly gaining steam over the last 15. But they also got to figure out some way to at least get some poor people to vote for them. And that move has been Christian conservatism, has been uh, has been racism, has been white nationalism. And it's getting, I think, a little harder. One of the reasons I think it's interesting is it's getting a little harder now that wealth disparities are getting bigger. I mean, it's more some of the same conditions that helped FDR become president of the United States are resembling, not in terms of the economic collapse, but in terms of the big wealth gaps, the things that built the progressive movement 100 years ago are starting to manifest themselves again. And of course, you can't actually say you can't actually vote for policies that would ramp up antitrust enforcement, that would rebuild the middle class, that would boost the minimum wage. You can't actually build a pro middle class, pro democracy agenda and win a Republican primary and get Republican campaign contributions and get Coke dollars. But you can talk about it. And even Tucker Carlson will find what you're saying interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's about right. And what we do see in place of actual um, policy substance is a lot of familiar red meat about borders and integrity of the nation, quote unquote. And this is a very sort of ethnically, racially coded definition of the nation that these guys um, are talking about. They just had a very high profile conference in D.C. You may have discussed it on the show um, in which they were sort of trying to figure out how to talk about this new neo-nationalism on the right in ways that weren't explicitly uh, in racist terms, but they really couldn't do it. I mean, it was, you know, they had control of their own conference, and even uh, by their own terms, they couldn't keep it in bounds. So we, I, I didn't talk about this conference. I didn't talk. What was it? Was, was this the National Conservatism Conference? That's it. Yeah. Uh, and it was sort of the coming out event of this group that's being called the post-liberals, which, again, is really just a revival of this Buchananite tradition on the right, which has always kind of been there, but it was suppressed for a long time um, by this Republican fusion coalition that had business and libertarians in charge of the party, uh, business Republicans and libertarians. And these guys are trying to assert independence and eventually reassert control of the party. And they had this this conference, which they were trying to make the case for their um, version of nationalism, and they were trying to separate themselves from the ruder, cruder, more rougher-edged um, elements of, of the Trump presidency and, and his rhetoric, and they really couldn't do it. Um, they had you know, speakers talking about how this country would just be better off the whiter it is, you know, how um, immigrants can't uh, assimilate, even though they talk a lot about religion and immigrants are some of the most pro-church, you know, family-oriented people in the country, if you look at the numbers. So there's a lot of disconnect and a lot of contradiction in what they're trying to do and what they're saying. 
Um, so one would be very uh, advised to, to cast a very suspicious eye on any of their claims regarding either the economic populist side of it or this, you know, we're not really racists, we're just interested in the American worker. Do we have another suspect? Do we have another name for alternative language from the word conservative, which I think has not applied to and does not uh, does not accurately describe the apparatus that right now controls much of the American government? Do we have another word for populist? I mean, that's a very long and fraught. I know, but like like racism, racism ain't actually all that popular. Like like a lot of people, a lot of us feel it. But when we think about it, we're not supposed to like it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the left tradition of populism, that's sort of the more authentic version. And then on the right, I, I think these, these guys, if you have to put a word on them, are, are really just demagogues. And they're kind of posing as, as a sort of reactionary populist, but really there's a much more um, insidious program here, which yeah, is like, allied like, with elites if, and hierarchies. If, if what you do is race baiting or even religion baiting or even nationalism baiting, in order to promote an agenda that benefits the narrow few of the nation, I think it's been an enormous mistake by the national conversation to allow that to be called populist rather than hucksterism or something else. Anyway, yeah. w- where can I find out more, good sir? I wrote an article for the New Republic about this subject last week called Is Josh Hawley for Real? Is he for real? <laughs> no, he's not. Appreciate well, in time. some ways he is, but not in the way that matters. Got to read the article. We'll be back. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the Fred chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-G-O-L-D. Stella from Providence. Go ahead, Stella. Hi, I was um, calling in in response to your request for a substitution for a conservative. Thank you. I've been saying this for 10 years, regressive. And the nice thing about regressive is it still starts with R. You can put R in a parentheses next to it and still sort of seems like the same thing. And the, and, and that and then while I was listening and being infinitely patient, <laughs> snark, um, I... I heard you mention uh, looking for a word for populism. It's yeah. more like tribalism on steroids, you know? You know what I like? You know, Still, you know what I like both of those words? I really, appre- I really appreciate your call, and I wish we would have talked 10 years ago. I think I might, 
I think regressive works. It also works because it applies to uh, taxation. And regressive versus pr- progressive actually talks about the uh, pretty quickly about the difference in tax policy for at least most people. In those, well, go ahead, well, go the, ahead. The, the rant that I initially had regarding uh, regressivism was just you know the, the inappropriate nomenclature of the word conservative. When yeah. what are these people conserving? Only their wealth and power, and that of their donors. Yeah. They aren't conserving the environment. They aren't conserving the economy. They aren't conserving, you know, the well, the welfare of the nation by any means. Yeah, and still, this is exact, exact. This, you know, I'll just say, Amen. This is exactly why I asked the question. I'll say something else I like about the word regressive. Somebody last week proposed reactionary, and I'm still playing. I'm still wrestling with that. It hasn't been. I haven't immediately glommed onto it because much of what's happening doesn't feel like merely a reaction. Very often it feels like a proaction in favor of something that is lousy and working in favor of, of we'll call them regressive policies. So I like the word regressive and appreciate the call. And tribalism, uh, tribalism I also appreciate for a different reasons. Stella, you're, you may win Best Caller Award. I don't want to besmirch the college previously, but there's a chance you'll win Best Caller Award. That, that award does not exist until this very moment. But also because very often we play the word thing. If we pick a word that doesn't feel accurate or only feels inflammatory, it seems less likely to catch on. Tribalistic is different than calling somebody a racist. Uh, and therefore, I think it, it, it's been hard for people just to call Donald Trump a racist in lots of media Well, uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of a substitute for white nationalism. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. And, and I'm a, you know, Mayflower descendant. I'm, I'm whiter than white. Um, you live in Providence. Yeah. yeah. Finest in inbreeding, I swear. <laughs> Stella, thank you so much for the call. Lisa from Santa Rosa, California, you're on the air. Last week, you reminded us about how much words matter, and you said something about, let's just call it the Trump report, the Trump investigation, what it really is. And I had a little epiphany, because, you know, when you are just smothered by all the other kind of crap on the, you know, airwaves, it's sort of hard to remember that's exactly correct. We should call it what it really is. For example, report and Trump investigation. Moscow Mitch may actually take hold. And if we can just keep saying Trump report, Trump investigation, just don't forget, say it. Say it on TV. You were right. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. I agree with you. And by that, I mean I agree with myself. But Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And if you can find another word for populism, I would really be appreciative. It'd be handy. It drives me crazy. No. <laughs> so what we know, right, what Hannah, er- uh, what, what Hannah Arendt taught us was that, and what studies of totalitarian regimes taught us, was what helped build the fascist movements in the middle of the last century, early portion of the last century, was when demagogues, when race baiters, you pick your name, when would-be fascists, would be anti-Semitic when they would give their strong anti-Jewish diatribes. They'd get their loudest cheers. They'd get their biggest crowds, and that helped feed. I mean, were, Adolf Hitler was not the only anti-Semitic leader. He was not the only person running for office and trying to build a movement in uh, in post Weimar Germany. The uh, there were there were others as well, but he was the one that could get the biggest crowds and get the biggest cheers. And that's one of the reasons I don't think that Donald Trump is unimportant when I say he's the rattler. I mean, he is not the master strategist of all things. 
But would we call, would we have called those various competing would-be fascists, would we have called them populists? Is that what we would have called them? No, but they do now. And that drives me crazy. Thank you. Drives me crazy, too. Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate it. We got time for another one. Let's go to Stephen from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I think it's pronounced Albuquerque. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to emphasize to people how much power that three, four decades of AM hate radio has influenced this nation. I was raised in the Midwest, and a lot of my uncles and uh, cousins owned uh, family farms. And they were raised God-fearing people, conservative, some Republican, some Democrat. But as the years went on, and these AM radio stations got more and more uh, people like Rush Limbaugh preaching the gospel that if your life sucks, it's because of the Democrats, the liberals. It's because of what they're doing to your country. And and this diatribe's gone on for decades. And I'm thinking to the now here in the year 2019, a lot of them no longer farm and have sold off the land and rented it and so forth. And I'm thinking none of my relatives would have voted for a city slicker like Donald Trump, who uses lawyers to get out of trouble all the time and and never uh, pays his workers that he hires. This is a man I could not believe could ever be accepted by my family. Or people in Methodist and Baptist churches voting for him and deciding that somehow his conduct is Christian. I want to respond to that right after this. This is Tom Show. I'm Jeff. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our selection today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. This is from Chapter 1. It's about halfway through the chapter. He's talking about Bernard DeVoto. DeVoto was the first major historian of the West who was also an environmentalist and an activist, the first chronicler of what Wallace Stenger called the West's curious desire to rape itself. DeVoto was a Westerner raised in Utah. He suffered in the provincialism and intolerance of Mormon country, went east to study and then teach at Harvard, settled in Cambridge, but never forgot the beauty of his native ground. Loving the land and history, said a magazine profile, but loathing the society. His histories, novels, criticism, his essays in Harper's Magazine, where for 20 years he wrote the oldest column in American journalism, Easy Chair, pointed to always West. His trilogy, published in the 1940s, garnered the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award. Widely celebrated, DeVoto used his position to become his generation's most outspoken defender of the public lands. He called the West a plundered province, a resource colony for corporations and absentee landlords who practiced, quote, an economy of liquidation. He was broad in his assault on the liquidators. He went after the timbermen, the mining companies, the stockmen, the cattle barons, the oilmen and gasmen, the overgrazers, the deforesters, the denuders, the profiteers of gold rushes and grass rushes. He named the bankers and congressmen who abetted the plundering, the western hogs, he called them. Massive timber frauds in the 19th century, the largest land frauds seen in the West, led directly to the establishment of the Forest Service in the 20th century, its purpose to stop deforestation. Out of control cattle numbers in the steppe, overgrazing that turned the fragile soil to dust, led directly to the federal grazing regulatory system that eventually became the BLM. When in 1946 the commodity users conspired to destroy the public land system, 
the system in which devotos saw the only hope for Western conservation and preservation. He stood to oppose them. Quote, he was the first conservationist in nearly half a century, except for Franklin D. Roosevelt, to command a national audience, said Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a student of his at Harvard. No one did more in the post-war years to rouse public opinion against the spoilers than Devoto. Devoto and Schlesinger had seen firsthand what unregulated industry could wreak in the arid lands when they drove cross-country together in the spring of 1940 and entered western Kansas past the 100th meridian. These were the last years of the Dust Bowl before FDR's soil conservation programs and the return rains of the 40s could heal the land. Wrote Devoto, a cemetery was 10 inches deep in sand. Half the headstones had toppled into it and been partly covered. Sagging shacks that had been farmhouses had their windows blown out and dust was two or four or six feet deep against their western walls and a foot deep against the far wall. A repulsive dust as fine as sifted flour. Now, six years after that trip with Schlesinger, Devoto was confronted with the West's cattle barons, the liquidators of the grass, who were hell-bent on reducing the region to the same mess of dust. In 1946, the Joint Committee on Public Lands of the American National Livestock Association met in Salt Lake City to discuss the goal of undermining what few regulations had been placed on livestock operators under the newly formed Bureau of Land Management. The stock growers' ambition went further than mere deregulation. They hatched a plan with the help of friends in Congress to begin moving all federal land, the BLM and Forest Service domain, as well as the national parks, into the control of the states. The plan evolved through 1946, 47, 48, with legislation making its way on Capitol Hill. Devoto covered the story for Harper's. He cautioned that the stock growers were attempting, quote, one of the biggest land grabs in American history. The public lands are first to be transferred to the states on the wholly justified assumption that there should be a state government not wholly compliant to the desires of stock growers. It could be pressured into compliance, he wrote in Harper's. Nothing in history suggests the states are adequate to protect their own resources or even want to, or suggests that cattlemen and sheepmen are capable of regulating themselves even for their own benefit still less the public's, end quote. The long-term plan, he said, was to get rid of the public lands altogether, to place the common possession of the American people into private hands. The livestock industry went on the attack, mounted a PR campaign to discredit Devoto, and pressured Harper's to cease its support. Unmoved, the magazine continued for three years to publish his relentless exposés of the intrigues in the state houses and in the Western Caucus. Devoto had convinced the editors, when no other publication that mattered in the East cared, that the threat of such land transfer was an existential one. This land by Christopher Ketchum. You know, age works its, um, I was going to say magic, but <laughs> whatever you want to call it, on all of us. And eventually, there are, there are days when, you know, you look in the mirror and go, I could use a little help. Well, what works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See it for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags 
disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention TOM. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Show. We've been talking about language today. One thing I promised. I want to get to Beverly's call and Nancy's call. Uh, but one thing I promised was the strategic map. And to tease it just a little bit more, introduce it a little bit more, and explain a little bit of it. I've been thinking about how we spend our time. If we are going to change the trajectory of the nation, if we are going to change from the trajectory of political power moving in a right-wing direction, certainly since 1980, some would argue since Brown versus Board of Education, moving in a regressive direction, if we adopt Stella's term instead of conservative, because we had, and we've had so many callers who have pointed out the weakness of the word, the, the incorrectness, the inaccuracy of the word conservative as it is currently applied that we, if, if we commit ourselves to not only being observers to what's happening in the nation, but to being activists, to being agents of change, to bending the arc of history towards justice or the arc of the moral universe, if you prefer, what should we do? How should we focus our attention? So much of the attention of our social media feeds and of our radio and of our TV, of this program, is about the current occupant of the White House. But he did not put himself there. The condition that begat the current Congress did not happen in a year or two. It was a decades-long movement. When there was a movement to change school boards funded by the right-wing movement, using Christianity as a cover. It was a recognition that eventually you could build power, that those activists who were working on school board races could work on legislative races, and those legislative race activists could work on congressional races. And if they were doing that, of course they would vote for the president. They're not going to leave that part of the ballot blank. But what has been learned is that if you only focus the top of the ballot, sometimes people say, oh, I came here to vote against Trump. I check that box and I can go home. I don't need to pay attention to who's running for Congress, or the legislature, or the U.S. Senate, or county judge, or city council person, or dog catcher, if they elected that any further. But I assure you, if the family members of the candidate for dog catcher came to vote, they'd fill out the rest of the ballot. They'd only skip the stuff they really couldn't figure out. So what should we focus upon? And part of the challenge is, is if you say, hey, everybody, go focus, just focus local. What do you mean? There's a lot of local. My local's different than their local. So you end up on a national program not being able to tell anybody exactly what might be useful for them to do. That's why we welcome calls and say, hey, well, here's something we're working on that is useful. But what I did was I spent some time over the weekend at least dividing the country into a few categories. 
at least figuring out that, okay, I, I can't just say everybody go work on, but go work on your state legislative race. Oh, go, go work with your, uh, go work with your, uh, my state legislative race. I live in a democratic district. The Democrats going to win. Okay. I'll spend time for this shade of Democrat versus that shade of Democrat. Was that going to help? Well, maybe. If I say, everybody, go work on campaign finance reforms. Well, we can't pass that where I am. Or we already have a pretty good campaign finance system where I am. It makes it hard to generalize. And because it's hard to generalize, and people with national programs want to build their national audience, they don't want anything that only speaks to 8% of their audience or 22% of their audience or 3% of their audience. So what impacts all of you? I don't know, the Iran deal. Trump saying some racist stuff. And then instead of working on the, in the ways where you might have the most impact, not just sending another $3 to Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, but figuring out how you could have significant impact on the overall trajectory of democracy in the particular opportunity that's presented near you. And then we continue to spin. We continue to, you know, win or lose a presidential race. But now you have 30 states that are fully controlled by Republican legislatures. You have a Supreme Court that is the most right wing Supreme Court, the most regressive Supreme Court. Thank you, Stella. Since the Lochner era, since the turn of the last century, since the run up to the Great Depression. And yes, I use that analogy very much on purpose. That reference. So what I did, I spent some time this weekend at least putting it in some categories. And I figured, well, if you've got, uh, if you've got, you, if you live in a blue state, what could you do? Let's start with a blue state. If you live in a blue state, what could you do? I think if you live in a blue state, I would focus on democracy. There's other things you could do, but I would focus on democracy. I would, I would make sure that in that state, you had a system of voting that allowed everybody to vote, that you uh, that you worked on voter access. We had a caller last week that pushed this, that you push for automatic voter registration plus vote by mail with a paper record. We go big on voter access, make cloak yourself, like, drape yourself, drench yourself in democracy. You could also advocate for publicly financed elections, maybe a little harder at the state level because states have had their budgets attacked so much, but it's still doable. And if you can't get it done in this economy, you're not going to get it done in the middle of a recession. And, of course, make sure your legislature is blue. Those are some blue state things to do. Now, let's say hey, you live in a blue city. Lots of you live in blue cities. What could you do? Here's where I'm going to say publicly financed elections. A six to one match like New York City or democracy vouchers like Seattle. Grow real local candidates. Remove a barrier to running. A barrier for young people, a barrier to middle class people, a barrier to busy people, a barrier to people of color, a barrier to people without a lot of rich friends, a barrier to people who don't want to sell themselves out to corporate lobbyists. Build trust in the process. Build movements and networks that aren't dependent on corporate lobbyists. Hey, can I get an endorsement? That person can say, oh, should I endorse that candidate? Well, they're not really with my corporate lobby buddies. But if they came up in a people-based movement that wasn't funded by corporate lobbyists, then all of a sudden, yeah, I'll endorse you. And you, start, you can start building an apparatus, a pro-people apparatus. And we can do that in blue cities all across the country. That could happen in 50 cities in America. And if that happened in 50 cities in America, we would be a couple decades away from a fully transformed America. People say, oh, it's too, that's too slow. Let me tell you, 
Think about how long it's going to take to change the Supreme Court. There will be real world impact of doing that. You'll have impact on immediate term. You'll have impact on housing. Stuff in my city just happened with with more people based candidates. They've been working hard on access to housing. You'll have real impacts in real lives in blue cities if you if you have people based movements. But it will also have big long term benefit, both short term and long term benefit. But what happens? What happens if you work? If you live, if you activate, if you engage in a purple state, what do I do then? I, I can't. I can't do all this fluffy hearted stuff you're talking about. Jeff, I live in Michigan. I live in Pennsylvania. I live in Wisconsin. I live in a place where, well, there are things for you too. Win your legislature. Adopt a legislative district. Figure out where the close legislative districts are. And volunteer for that person, donate to that person, build minor movements to help that person. That's how we got the bus project started. Bus project's now changing its name. Now it's the Alliance for Youth, Youth Action something or other. It has headquarters in 11 states. But it started out recognizing that young people could have a significant impact on local legislative races. So can you. Another thing you can do, like Michigan did, nonpartisan redistricting. Nonpartisan redistricting to say, and, and, and if you do this, if this happens only in blue states and doesn't happen in red states, well, all that'll happen is that you'll get, you'll end up sending more uh, Republicans to Congress. But Eric Holder's work to try to purify a little bit the districting process is noble work. And in purple states, in states where aptly drawn districts will create aptly drawn, uh, will send. Uh, representative representatives that is both moral and strategic you can also in those states work on the national popular vote it might give it a chance it's winning in the blue states if you can get national popular vote done in a purple state well then we're going to have a popular vote in the country if that happens in the purple states win the legislature nonpartisan redistricting and national popular vote that's the purple state map we got one minute left but don't worry but jeff i live in a red state I live in Alabama. I live in I live in North Carolina. Well, you're kind of a swing state now, but I live in South Carolina. I live in Ohio, which is not nearly as much of a blue state as it used to be, not even much as a purple state. Well, Ohio, I'm going to still say go, go yourself in the purple direction. Look at your legislature. Look at your nonpartisan redistricting. But if you're in a, just a really red state, nonpartisan gerrymandering, gerrymandering, if you can, but also... And also you live in a purple city, change the party structure, advocate for a different way to elect folks. Because I recognize in some places in this country, it's just it's just a really long way to remind. Hey, wait a minute. Democrats used to win here. You know, I know you've been listening to Limbaugh and watching Fox News for a long time and, and some right wing Christian preacher who somehow pretends that God is for big military and big business because they didn't read the New Testament. Might be a bridge too far to say vote Democrat. But it might not be a bridge too far to say, hey, let's have a system that's not quite so partisan. Let's have a system that allows for other parties to have voices. And then somebody can run under independent or run under Working Families Party, and they can still be pro-democracy. They don't have to be a Democrat, but they can be pro-democracy. They can be pro-human. They can be pro-climate. They can be pro-middle class. That's my quick map. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is Tom's show. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Mark from Burbank, California. Go ahead, Mark. 
Yeah, hi, Jefferson. How are you doing? Um, I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate your thoughtfulness on the show always. Thanks. And um, I have a, a name other than uh, Regressives, which I think is great. Yeah. But this one is kind of based on the way people are being treated at the border, being caged and so on. And I think a good name would be Repugnantkins. It's wonderful, except I don't. I couldn't hear what you said. Rep, oh, repugnant? Repugnant? Repugnantkins. All right. Thank you, Mark, for the phone call. Ivan from Illinois, go ahead. Jefferson, my man, I love to give the right a taste of their own medicine. All right. Whenever I share a post that's about Trump's malfeasance, I keep my comment short and sweet, all caps. Lock him up. And when I tweet or retweet some lie, I always add hashtag lock him up. This drives the right-wing trolls crazy, and they attack me unmercifully, which I love. Well, I appreciate your willingness to take the attacks, Ivan. John, you are watching Free Speech TV from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that uh, the Republicans are radicals. They, they're not uh, really reactionary. Uh, I mean, they're not wanting to go back to any former point in history. They want to remake this country in their own image, which means a helpless, defenseless uh, population uh, that is just at their beck and call. And, you know, at, since Ronald Reagan, they've actually been able to accomplish quite a bit in that respect. We have... Uh, the fourth estate, which is in shambles because it's just propaganda. And we cannot have a truth-free democracy. The Founding Fathers uh, talked about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the dictatorships of the 20th century, uh, Nazis, the Nazis, Mussolini, uh, and then also uh, the totalitarian, totalitarian regime in Russia, proved that uh, propaganda is how you can control people. And, you know, this is where we're at. And we were sold by both parties. And I would say the Democrats, the leadership of the Democratic Party needs to be changed. And uh, it, they are doing their best to prevent that. And I'm talking about... Well, let's, um, let, let's, do, let's do, in the speed round, let's do one point per. But I do want to write it down to reply to the thing on, re reply to your second comment. Uh, I'll react to the radical part. One of the reasons I really like Stella's regressive, and thank you again, Stella, is that when we use, and I think you're right, that the challenge with saying reactionary is, well, they're not just reacting to stuff. They're proposing radical change. They're not. It's the same reason I don't think conservative applies. They're not being conserving anything. They're not trying to either conserve the environment or conserve a set of cherished ideas. They are pushing for radical change of the economy. It's just radical change of the economy that's good for too few people. But the reason I don't love using the word radical is that radicals in the 70s are some of our favorite people. And I think also we also do need radical change. So we don't want to taint the word radical. So, so far, I'm liking that regressive, appreciating your call. Uh, I'll make a comment. I'll reply on changing leadership maybe later. My quick tease, spoiler alert. I think the, the way that you change political leadership is not only through trying to get somebody different to be Speaker of the House. Right. I think the way you change political leadership is by changing the context of the country. That I, if you were going to prioritize what you're going to send letters to, send letters to your city council people to advocate for publicly financed elections. Send letters to your member, your state legislators to open up the elections process. If we have more democracy, we will have more small D Democratic elected leaders. I have more to say about that, but it's supposed to be speed round. Will Salem, Oregon. 
Hey, Jefferson, how are you? This is actually an important topic, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think it's not not fluff stuff. What we are the words we use in a big anyway for the for the and right, they are not conservatives. I, I've been doing this for at least ten years. I the, what what I would recommend is they're the grand old fill in your name party. Now you can that fourth that third word you can say anything you want. You could say fascist. You could say Koch brothers, the grand old Koch brothers party, the grand old billionaire. Billionaires Party, the grand old We Hate America Party, but the, but it's all set up just the grand old fill in your name party, and uh, and obviously they're not conservative. These these are fascist reactionaries, Koch brothers. And anyway, that's my my, my thought. Will appreciate it so much, uh, Dave from Armstrong Armstrong Creek, Wisconsin. Go ahead, Dave. Hi, uh, yeah, I just want to point out that uh, since the Reagan presidency and even a little bit before that, uh, the supply side economics. Uh, that went on were destroying labor unions and uh, freezing wages, basically, and the loss of jobs set this all up for Trump getting elected. It was, you know, he told everybody what they wanted to hear, and they believed him. And I think people, uh, they they hate to admit to themselves that they made a mistake, that they're, they're willing to go along with anything, you know, all the lies that he tells and everything like that. I, I listen to to Washington Journal in the morning, and and we, know, we're we're in, we're in speed round, so so right, okay. make the well, key anyway, point. Anyway, it's, it's so predictable about they're willing to buy to let things that he says go, just for the sake of 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 being in denial that they that they made the mistake putting this man in. No, there's huge cognitive dissonance going on. And one of the reasons why the attack on Trump doesn't make people change their mind about Trump is that. They've made their decision, and that feels like an attack on their own judgment, on their own wisdom. Uh, it's a little bit like the argument John Kerry made about the Vietnam War. Who will be the one to be, who will be the last person to die for a mistake? Uh, it's a similar sunk cost fallacy challenge. Leo, it's speed round from Portland, Oregon. I know Portland. Hi, how are you? Doing good. We got about 30 seconds. Um, Okay, so I, my thing that's just got me going is that we kind of we we are playing into the Republicans' wedge issue thing, you know, with uh, um, refugees drinking out of toilets and making that like the main news story for days and weeks at a time. Um, we let them prioritize our attention on less important issues that don't or shouldn't affect us directly. I mean, I don't want refugees taking out of toilets, but we're still spending millions and losing lives on war. Um, the environment uh, is, is going on. The country's uh, roads and bridges are falling apart. And we get so outraged that, uh, you know, at what's going on at the border that we have, uh, we, we wound up giving a windfall to the people that are doing it, um, saying that $750 a head or whatever it is, you know, whatever astronomical amount it is. Yep isn't enough let your mark 4.5 billion dollars more if i was running a scam getting uh you know foster kids and i got a thousand foster kids and starved them and treated them like slaves yeah. you know uh well, yeah we're going to, we're going to break hey ever wake up in the middle of the night sweating it's a fairly common thing. It's because your bed and your bedroom don't really regulate the temperature. And our body goes through cycles as we sleep where it actually is generating or not more or less heat. And so what's comfortable at one time of night is not comfortable at another time of night. And now there's a bed that actually responds to your needs 
for, for cool or warm or whatever it may be. The bed is called the pod. It's from 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T sleep. It's the first and only bed with what they call a responsive surface technology. It's designed to keep you cool all night long. It's like, the pod is like the Tesla of beds. The pod dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body and changes it throughout the night. And science shows you can sleep deeper because of this, leading to optimal mind and body performance. You'll find that 8sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems. And with the pod, they're delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty nights ever again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They're already sold out of the first two batches, so they're going fast. For a limited time, get 150 bucks off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash Tom. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Show. We've got Bob Nay on the line, Talk Media News. Bob, you there? Yes. Hi, Jefferson. How about the Iran nuclear deal? Please. Well, we all know a couple of things. We know that Secretary of State Pompeo had said what to us a few months ago. He was going to Europe having very intense discussions with our, 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 our allies uh, in Europe, and uh, that would garnish support to help the United States to oppose Iran. And then, of course, we heard from John Bolton, the national security advisor, who's never seen a country he doesn't want to bomb, that, of course, Iran would fear and would have to have regime change and on and on and on. And this was always a result of, of course, a change from the Secretary of State Tillerson, who encouraged the president to stay in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, and then it went to uh, Bolton and Pompeo and the rest is history. Well, having said all of that, there was a meeting, and it was diplomats from Iran, Germany, France, Britain, China, Russia, and the European Union, and they recommitted yesterday to saving Tehran's 2015 nuclear deal after very constructive talks in Vienna. This is according to the Associated Press, and it's from both sides, both uh, all the countries I mentioned and the Iranians itself. Now, why is this a big deal? Because there's a lot of tension, obviously, between the West and Iran, and uh, a United Kingdom uh, British tanker was taken. We got pretty upset about it, but it seems like the United Kingdom isn't as upset as we are and is negotiating you know, about that situation with the tanker, but proceeded on diplomatically. So my whole point to this is a next general strategy, which would be for the European Union to set up payment systems keep doing business with Iran, therefore going around American sanctions and basically, Jefferson, sort of isolating the United States. So all of the plans and all of the coalitions, et cetera, obviously have failed when it comes to basically most of the rest of the world in dealing with, uh, with Iran. I appreciate that. And I recognize this is to some degree a different topic, but what impact do you see on American policy, on American strategy for the change with Dan Coats out as intelligence director, maybe with respect to Iran, but also generally? Well, I mean, I think in general, uh, you know, Dan Coats, as we know, had disagreements with the president on you know certain ways to handle you know issues, especially particularly Russia. But like anything, when uh, Tillerson left, who, by the way, you know, uh, I and many other people in the media were not particularly fans of his, but he actually kind of grew on people to be more of a moderate. So uh, the president's already, you know, announced uh, he, he's got a choice, you know, that he's made. Of course, it was Ratliff who was 
very, very big, uh, supporting him recently with uh, the Robert uh, you know, Mueller deal. And so I think it does make a difference, because as Pompeo came in and Tillerson left, and as obviously John Bolton came in, the entire system within the White House went to the right of the right of the right, the neocon hawkish side. So if, in fact, the president... Uh, you know, has someone else in in this position taking Dan Coates' position, it could just further veer to the right. And why is that worth mentioning? Because you, you've asked the right question. There are forces within the White House, I want to note, and this is, you know, something I know from context. There are forces in the White House who are trying to go the other direction. So it's sort of like this, you know, chess game. Those in the White House who want to, you know, not push all the buttons to, be, to begin world conflicts and then New people who you can bet that the influence of of people like Pompeo and uh, John Bolton will be there to try to get the most uh, hawkish choices. So it's it's sort of an internal struggle, and I think it's very important to us and to uh, you know world uh, stability. Yeah, and my uh, Trump's move—it's baffling. It can be baffling oh. and disorienting because oh. it feels so foreign. It, it feels so uh, um, atypical. But it's not that complicated. Trump punishes enemies and rewards friends. And the and and we thought that in liberal democracies we were supposed to do things to some degree based on reason, based on merit, based on some some shared understanding of the good. And and Trump sets that aside and says, Oh, this person said something nice to me and about me and did something nice for me. This person isn't always on my side. I'm gonna pick this person rather than that person. That dynamic is always there in politics. With Trump, he is he is sort of the apotheosis, he is sort of the, the, the pinnacle of that. The uh my what is the response like? Like, does Ratcliffe have any bona fides to be the head of national intelligence? I really don't think so. He supported the president pretty good, didn't he, on the committee? I mean, that's probably enough. You know, he asked the right questions. Be tough uh, on TV and look like you're not going to investigate Russia. Right. Tough on TV. And so I think that does it because you make a very good point with the president in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. It's not all his son-in-law and his closeness to Mohammed bin Salman, but it's also when the president went there. And I had a Saudi friend tell me this. They had TV sets every thousand feet. They had him on TV. They had this. They had that. You know, the whole pomp and, and uh, circumstance. And, and, it, and it impresses him. And just as you said, it, you know, that becomes his friend. And I think with this, he watched the performance of... Uh, obviously a Ratliff on television and liked it because how quick did he name the replacement to Coates? The ink wasn't dry on the letter. Bob Nay, as always, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let me come back to that point very briefly. Understand game theory. This is, this is, this is simple stuff. It's not easy. It's not, uh, and it's not easy to deal with, but it's simple. In game theory, when they played the prisoner's dilemma, and the idea was you win if you defect. If you're sort of a jerk and the other person is cooperates with you, you win. If you both defect, you both lose. If you both cooperate, you can win. That, that's the basic payout structure of the prisoner's dilemma. If you've seen Beautiful Mind, they cover it. It's the movie with Russell Crowe. And... What they learn by playing lots and lots and lots of iterations is that one of the most effective ways to win the prisoner dilemma, to win that kind of game, is with a tit-for-tat strategy. If somebody does something jerky to you, the next move, you do something jerky to them. 
And every time, you're always jerky to them. And if they're nice, you're nice. The modified tit-for-tat tends to be a little bit better than tit-for-tat. The world is not a prisoner's dilemma. We need leaders who don't just do tit-for-tat. But understand, that's all. That's Donald Trump's move. We should learn from it. Hopefully not merely replicate it. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Kyle from Chicago, go ahead. I guess the quick point is, you at least have to get honest that conservatives aren't coming up with their viewpoint to hold people back or because they hate people or human worth or any of these things. It's their honest opinion on what provides the most people the best path forward uh, yeah, uh, I, I, not yeah. to hold people back. Yeah, no, I think I think that it is. I think there's two parts. I, I would say there's from, from my uh, impression, there's two parts. I don't think any, well, just about any uh, person who voted for Donald Trump goes to bed and says, well, I want to vote for Donald Trump because I want to hold people back. That's not human beings as I understand them. I do think the militating force in the movement that has built the propaganda, that funded public choice theory, that built the Virginia school, that built the Chicago school, that the rhetorical apparatus that is fueled and been fueled by the right wing propaganda apparatus on radio and on television is making a deeply flawed argument, which is reward the powerful at the expense of the powerless and everything else is just going to work out. And that is, I will acknowledge to me, the big lie of the 20th century. I don't believe for most people who vote that way, it's because of bad motives. They agree with that viewpoint that if you cut taxes for the highest income earners or more importantly, perhaps the highest wealth holders, that's somehow going to benefit everybody. I understand that's an honestly held view. I just think that view has been empirically shown to be wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that means we shift to some other ridiculous extreme where nobody can earn anything based on how hard they work or how smart they are. Nobody makes that argument either. But we have shifted so far from the Eisenhower era, and we are seeing the fruits of it, which includes, and I think I'm going to have to finish with this, which includes gaping wealth disparities in the country, that includes what we're seeing with the evisceration of our planet. I don't think anybody who voted for Donald Trump or voted for the Bushes or voted for Ronald Reagan says, oh, I want to vote for these guys so we can make sure that we have more forest fires. I don't think anybody thought that. She's like, oh, well, regulation's a hassle. We don't want to mess with that hassle. Well, it turns out now we're having more forest fires. I believe and agree that for so many, the viewpoints are honestly held. At the same time, I think that some of those are deeply, deeply flawed. And I also think have been flawed on purpose by people whose motives were cynical, whose motives weren't Christian, whose motives weren't even capitalist in the best best sense. I'm going to be back tomorrow, tell you more things that I think that I might be wrong, and more importantly, harvest the really good thinking that many of the listeners have been offering and appreciate it. Kyle, do appreciate your call. Sounded like you think there should be a minimum wage. That is something we agree upon. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks, everybody, and thank you, democracy. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 